You're listening to audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Scripture this morning has um, been said is Psalm 130. So I'll read for us here. Hear the words of the living God. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. change some stuff up this morning or had to overcome a few little uh, obstacles and in the midst of that I didn't set this up correctly so give me a moment so I can make sure I have the notes uh, but we are going to be in Psalm 130 as um, was already mentioned doing a little bit of an audible but honestly uh, as we believe and trust in God's providence uh, we know that his desire his will his plans are better than our own um, so as uh, we pray, and it's difficult in those circumstances as to be home, and I'm sure frustrating for Laura to be home with COVID, we trust uh, him to be teaching us something um, in his kindness to us. So, so if you would turn to Psalm 130, um, and as I bring up my note here so that I have it, um, there's a lot more to be done that I realized I didn't do. All right, so uh, I'm going to start us in prayer so that he might uh, be with us and instruct us in his spirit uh, as we open up the word and, uh, and within the season and uh, spirit of Advent, both um, praise him and celebrate uh, his first coming um, and the hope that it does bring and then look forward to um, our future hope as we wait expectantly for his return. So if you would pray, pray with me as we start um, and prepare. Our hearts. Father, thank you so much for your loving kindness. Thank you, Lord, that um, you have demonstrated your love towards us in sending Christ. God, I'm grateful for the opportunity we even get to hear from you in your word. And I ask that you be with us as we open up um, the scripture, as we consider what the psalmist has to say. And Lord, we allow that to press on our own hearts and that your spirit would fill us and overflow in the instructions so that we might be quick to hear uh, and obey and look more like Christ day by day. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, you know, as humans, we can put uh, our hope in a lot of different things. Um, we can hope in success in our careers. We can hope for more money. We can hope for uh, the perfect marriage that will solve all ills. 
uh, we can hope in children that we can raise up to go on to do great things um, and you know, be my retirement plan for the future uh, because they're going to have awesome careers. We can hope in a lot of things. We can hope that the Atlanta Braves would win more than one World Series in my lifetime, and that has occurred. Um, as a side note, it did strike me that I, my, my oldest daughter is the exact same age as I was the very first time the Atlanta Braves won, or the last time the, World, the Atlanta Braves won the World Series for me, 13 years old. So it's been a long time coming. Celebrate. Praise him. Okay, so, um, but you can hope, we have hope in a lot of things. We can put our hope in uh, the right political leader to take office. Uh, we can put our hope in every single thing this world has to offer. And ultimately, though, all those things can disappoint us, will disappoint us. Um, over and over again, I try to share from here that if my wife uh, has learned anything in our marriage, she learns if she puts all her hope in me, she will be disappointed on a regular basis because I'm not sufficient uh, to satisfy all her needs. Uh, I am not um, perfect, so I will fail. And so, all, so will all of these things that we might pursue. Um, over and over again, we see stories of men and women who pursue these things in vain yet get uh, to the end of their life um, still hopeless. But the psalmist here brings up several important issues in the text. Uh, a psalm being a poem, often sung, um, and we're going to cover a number of psalms. The plan is through Advent uh, as well. Uh, hopefully you guys are invited on the 19th to celebrate along with uh, the Ethiopian church and the Brazilian church uh, and um, a new creation church. All of us are going to join together in worshiping the king that comes. And ultimately, this psalmist is doing and preparing our hearts, hopefully, for that celebration. And as we prepare and think in Advent, remember, Christmas Day is but one day. Um, the Advent season is a time for us to reflect and look and hope and longing, uh, praising and celebrating what God has done, but also looking forward to what he is continuing to do and will do in the end. And what the psalmist does is he demonstrates for us that ultimately the Lord is our hope. The Lord is our hope. And he does it as he moves through um, four very distinct movements of this psalm, this poem. Um, and this is a really great passage for us to be reminded of it. Isn't it, brothers and sisters? Isn't this a great reminder? Because I know I can find my hope in so many other things. Um, and if we're a believer, if we profess our faith in Christ, if we agree with all of church history that Christ came, that one day in a manger as a baby, our hope is so much stronger a foundation than anything else we could ever pursue. Anything. And this psalmist is writing before Christ came because he knows, I don't know what God's going to ultimately do, but it's going to be great because we can place all our trust and our hope in him. Over and over again in the New Testament, we hear from People like uh, Paul writing, saying that the prophets and even the angels long to look on to see how is God going to work this thing out? And he does this in Christ. And so let's look with the psalmist. What are the things that we can trust and place our hope in the Lord for? In uh, verses one and two, it reads this. Out of the depths, I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Now, in this particular passage, one of the things of note is that the author is seeming to speak out of a sense of deep sorrow. 
He, he's, he speaks out of the depths. It's, it's language of almost imagery of water, like he's buried underwater, a place that hopefully not all of us are in every day, but many of us have experienced for one reason or another, to feel completely submerged in our emotions. And the author says, out of those depths, I call to you, Lord. Out of that place in which I feel there is no hope. If I'm submerged underwater, I, look, I'm not a fantastic swimmer. I love the water. But if I'm down submerged and can't feel like I can get out, there would feel a sense of hopelessness, uh, of breathlessness. And the psalmist says, I cry out to you as if he's drowning. Yet I, I cry to you, Lord, Lord, listen to my voice. And guys, for us, sorrow can come from any number of places, right? Sorrow for us can come from loss, whether that's a loss of family or friend, a death in the family, a loss of someone we love that we no longer connect with or have a relationship with, a loss of, uh, of any kind, a loss of those things in this world that can cause real pain for us. And we know that, that to feel that loss is not sinful, we're people, we're humans. The, the reason we're given psalms and songs and poetry is because we are people of emotion and we express that. And so God designed us and created that, us that way. And we even see reflected in Christ that when he came to the, um, to the funeral of his friend Lazarus, he wept. And not because he had no hope in where Lazarus was going, but because we're affected by sin in this world. And pain from sin is real. Loss is real. And so we can experience sorrow from loss of any kind. We can experience sorrow from our own personal sin and grieves us. I hope, brothers and sisters, that you were grieved by your sin, not as, as one who would be hopeless, but that we would pursue to not fall into that sin over and over again. But our own sin can cause grief in our life and sorrow. Our own sin can cause us uh, to have consequences that are sorrowful. We can also... Uh, find sorrow from sin from others when others sin against us, right? Uh, there are people that for one reason or another might seem to be out to get you, uh, whether it be in your workplace or in um, ultimately it could be the sin of others, just family and friends that just aren't living up to the life that we, uh, that we as believers know God has called us to. And honestly, we sin against others, so we cause others sorrows. We could also see sorrow from physiological and psychological and emotional reasons. We don't want to discount this, and I'll be the first to admit that there's been a time in my life where I would say, oh, it's all medication, it's, it's too much of it, we're throwing this stuff around. But we have to be seriously honest about the fact that if we agree and accept the reality of total depravity, and what I mean by total depravity is that sin and the brokenness in this world affects every aspect of our life. You're not the worst that you possibly could be, but your emotions, your bodies, they're breaking down. That's affected by sin. Your mind and the way you see things, those are affected by sin and the brokenness of this world. So it would lead us to then understand that there are things internally in our minds that could cause us to feel real pain and sorrow that we might not be able to explain or understand. I, and you're not strange or uniquely broken because of it, to be in sorrow. With total depravity affecting everybody, we see other believers who we would say are faithful and strong, preachers of God's word, folks who have been valiant in the face of opposition for the gospel, but who suffered with depression and sorrow. 
They battled it. They came to the Psalms as a healing balm because the psalmist often would lift up their cries for help like the psalmist in what they're doing. Martin Luther would suffer such, such difficulty and depression that he's quoted once as sending a letter to a friend in which he says, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain and I still tremble. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. But through the prayer of the saints, God began to have mercy on me and pulled my soul from the inferno below. Even famed preacher Charles Spurgeon suffered under that dark cloud of depression on a regular basis. In reality, when he was a 22-year-old pastor, he was preaching to a crowd full, an auditorium full. Maybe you've heard this story. And someone thought it would be either funny or just wanted to, I don't know, the, the, that version of trolling, to come in and scream fire. And there were deaths, people trampling one another to run out from, try to get out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And of Charles Spurgeon, after that incident, he fell into such darkness that his wife says, my beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne and we sometimes feared he would never preach again. He himself even described the fact that depression could hit him so intensely he once said, I could say with Job, my soul chooses strangling rather than life. I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from the misery of spirit. So brothers and sisters, as an encouragement, we're not alone in this and we are not uniquely damaged. Sin affects us all. And the brokenness of sin, we face sorrow. But the psalmist says, that I can hope in the Lord, that out of the depths I can cry out to him because God is not far from the brokenhearted. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and he bandages their wounds. The only place we see our cries are hindered is by unrepentant, willful, unrepentant sin. Where we are ourselves choosing to turn away from God, but he is close to the brokenhearted. That's what we read in the Psalm 66, verses 16 through 20. Come and listen, all who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth, and praise was on my tongue. If I had been aware of malice in my heart, if I had been aware of sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. However, God has listened. He has paid attention to the sound of my prayer. Blessed be God. He has not turned away my prayer or turned his faithful love from me. Be encouraged in our darkest time. We can cry out with the psalmist and there is hope in our sorrow. That like Martin Luther, we, we might vacillate and come to a place where we feel God is far from us. But as we pray for one another and as we seek God's face, he is faithful in his mercy to pull us out of the depths. And God not only hears our cry, he sees you where you are. In the story of, of Abraham and Sarah, there was a servant named Hagar who came into tension, let's say, with Sarah. She was a surrogate. She carried another baby for Abraham. And so in the tension that was created in their family, she was sent out. Sarah put a lot of pressure, made it so unbearable for her that she had to go off by herself. A single mom 
with a kid in the desert. Even though her baby was not God's promised child and not part of his plan, it was outside of his obedience. We read in Genesis 16, 13, that he came to Hagar. He met her where she was. He saw her and he comforted her. And in verse 13, she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roi. For she said, in this place, I have actually seen the one who sees me. You're not alone in pain. He sees you and he is with you as a shepherd that kindly guides us along through life. As we trust him and we love him, he leads us along even as we go through the darkest of valleys. You don't have to fear any danger. For you, for God, is with you. His rod and his staff, the tools of a shepherd, are comforting to us. And though we see God is with us, we see God comforts us, no clearer do we see that God is with us in the sending of his son. That he has demonstrated his love for us and that while we were sinners and far from us, he sent Christ for us. And in Matthew 1.23, when Joseph was unsure of this newborn baby that was coming through, through Mary, he had a dream. And in that dream, God told him, she will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus Christ is God with us. We can hope in God because he was faithful to send his son. And as Jesus Christ, God is with us. He is present. He can relate to our pain. He can relate to our sorrow. He knows what it looks like to walk this earth. Jesus was born to an unwed mother. And there are cases where we regularly see people pointing it out. He was not, he was not a stranger to oppression from outsiders. He was not a stranger to, to doubt of other people because his brothers and stuff were like, his brothers and mother were sitting there going, okay, Jesus, I know you're special and all, but let's go home. People are joining a crowd around. They doubted him, yet they knew him. The crowds would come in opposition to him. He was wrongly accused. He was persecuted. He was killed on our behalf on the cross. He knew sorrow. Yet he stands as our great high priest. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us sin with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come boldly to that throne. Jesus identifies with us. He sees us and he knows where we have hurt and pain and he is with us. And we can go boldly before the throne of grace because the Lord is and looking at verse three and four, our hope for forgiveness. He's our hope for forgiveness. So not only is he our hope in our sorrow, but he is our only hope for forgiveness. Read verse three and four. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. Who, we, are all, we are all guilty before God, friends. We're all guilty before God. In the psalmist cries out, we should recognize that 
even though we stand before God guilty, and even though none of us could stand because we are guilty before him, there's forgiveness. The psalmist here, important to note, recognizes his guilt because how is there any forgiveness available for any of us who don't see our own guilt? If we don't recognize that guilt, there's no forgiveness. But the psalmist says, if, I, if you kept an account of my iniquities, who could stand? Quite literally. The opposite of what we often think is, I'm good enough, or I'm pretty good, I'm decent. If we did a poll in the street and we walked around and asked, you're good enough to get to heaven, most people would say, I'm gonna think I'm a pretty good person. I'm probably asking here, if you're being honest, unless you wanna get super theological on me, you probably believe you act like a pretty good person, right? In general, we're not the worst we can be. But the issue is not that we reflect on how we are compared to other people. The concern here that the psalmist is drawing out is that we need to look at ourselves in light of who God is. We need to look at ourselves in front of and in comparison to a holy and righteous God who is perfect and flawless and worthy of all of our praise and all of our devotion, yet we on the regular fail. Remember how we are broken? Our sinful eyes see the world differently. And there are ways that God is revealing to us that we are sinning day by day and hopefully shaping us and forming us and creating us to be more like Christ. But the reality is that we are so far from him. The temptation for us is to minimize our own sin, but in reality, it's cosmic treason. I love quoting R.C. Sproul on this. The fact that the God of the universe who's created everything and that we would dare, dare try to place ourselves on the throne by by following after our own desires and needs and wants. We're like Adam and Eve in the garden who said, you are keeping something from us and we want to be like God. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Uzzah in the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant was a piece, was actually the throne of God. It was, it was set up by Israel. It was their people would move this from place to place. There was a great movie made about it. The Ark of the Covenant, maybe you've seen that. No, Indiana Jones fans in here? Sorry. Okay. All right. So that one did not land. Mark that one off. Um, in reality, uh, that's not a true story of documentary or anything, just, just in case you're wondering. Um, but there is this true, there are true stories from Scripture about the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know where it is at this point, uh, but we do know the Israelites uh, prioritized it. They had direct commands on what they needed to do and how they needed to handle uh, the Ark of the Covenant. They needed to carry it in a very certain way. No man could ever touch the Ark of the Covenant. It was a holy peace within the temple. And there's a story in which um, Israel had finally gotten the Ark back where it had been captured by the uh, Philippians, was the name of the uh, nation that had it. And they were bringing it back to Jerusalem. And on route, they were actually put it on top of an ox cart, by the way, wasn't what they were supposed to do. They had little rings on the side. They were supposed to put the, the bars through the rings, uh, their long poles, and they would walk it. They're supposed to walk it back. It was gonna be easier, quicker. So they put it on an ox cart and everybody's walking around the outside of it. Not a problem yet to the fact that nobody's touched it, but at one point, as would probably be expected on a rough dirt road back in those times, uh, they hit some kind of a mud hole or something. The cart got shaky. The ark looked like it might fall off into the mud. And a man named Uzzah reached up and tried to steady the ark. And immediately God said, thank you, Uzzah. I appreciate that. I did not want my ark to land in the mud. If you're familiar with the story, that's not how it goes. The story is as soon as he touches the ark, he drops dead. 
And we might look at that and say, God, Uzzah was trying to help you out here. Why do we want the ark to get dirty? We don't want it to fall into the ground. Now, mind you, they were already disobeying God by the way they were carrying it. But the problem for Uzzah was not that he wrongly tried. Well, he did wrongly, but not that, that he was doing anything that had anything to do with the mud. The problem was he disobeyed God in touching it. And the problem was, and this is a quote by R.C. Sproul on this very story. The presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed that his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There was nothing about the earth that would desecrate the throne of God. The earth was lying there on the ground doing what God has called earth to do, being dirt, turning to dust when it's dry and turning to mud when it's mixed with water. It obeys the law of God day in, day out, doing exactly what dirt is supposed to do. There is nothing defiling about the earth. But Uzzah's hand, our hand, our life, we're defiled by sin. And the problem is we don't think, we think like Uzzah. Not because we think so highly of ourselves, but because we fall into the temptation to think so little of God. Every wrong, every debt, every crime, every sin has a price. And in Romans, it says the wages, the cost of sin is death. In executing cosmic treason, if we, if you, you, do you know the price of treason in even the U.S. is death? Every country has that in place. And cosmically speaking, it's not like God's trying to fall in line with this, but really ultimately, as one who would usurp the throne of God, the cost for that is death. But God chooses, as the psalmist says, to forgive. He chooses to forgive, and he chooses to forgive in a way that doesn't go without cost. But it goes with him paying the price. And I hope you would notice that in every aspect of your life. If you have a million-dollar credit card line debt with Capital One, and they come to you one day, and you're like, I can't do it. And they say, not a problem. We're just going to take it off the balance sheets. Capital One has not magically made that debt disappear. They paid it. They took the cost. They absorbed the price. And on such a grander scale, God of the universe has looked at us and our sin and our debt to him and our sin and our guilt before him. And he chose to send his son to pay the price. He sent his son so that we might be forgiven. And we can have confidence like the psalmist that God is a gracious God who forgives us because he sent his son. It's what Paul says in Romans 8. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave, us, gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. He forgives. And he has demonstrated his desire to forgive us in sending Christ. That's our hope. A little baby in a manger. That God would send him. It's the reason 
that the angels would cry, there's good news of great joy for all people. And they would praise glory to God in the highest peace on earth because a baby came to live, to die so that we might be forgiven and live. See, sometimes our trouble can come from the outside, not a result of our own sin. In this broken world, we might be the target of others' hates and attacks, but through any affliction, the Lord is our hope in trouble. Verses five and six. I wait for the Lord. I wait and put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. The third thing we see in this movement, the third important piece of this psalm is that the Lord is our hope in trouble. So while we might feel sorrow inside or we might not, he's our hope in sorrow. While we are guilty of sin, he is our hope for forgiveness. But there's also sometimes things that can be an attack on our person that, that don't cause us sorrow, but cause us pain, cause us affliction. And what we see here is the symbolism or the imagery that the psalmist is painting for us is being surrounded by darkness. Can we relate to that law in life? Sometimes just our surroundings feel like darkness. A dark night of the soul. Pain because it seems like our enemies are surrounding us on all sides. That we face opposition. What we've got to remember is that we're not always a victim. Sometimes it's our own sin creating the environment. But there are times, and we know it's true, that there are some people, places, things. There are things in this life that will come into opposition with us. Especially when we are of Christ. I mean, Jesus himself says that they will reject you because they rejected me. And so the imagery that the psalmist goes to is that we are waiting on the Lord, putting hope in his word, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Think of it this way. If you're on the last watch of the night and trying to get through, I used to, um, I went to a military school and we had to do guard duty from time to time, which meant you would have to be the shift that was, I don't know, 3 a.m. to 7 a.m. or 4 a.m. to, it's dark when you get out there. And I hear this, and he's talking of a man who's watching the city, and he's late at night. All the partiers are in at this point. It's dead quiet. It's silent. All he has is alone with his thoughts. And all he can think of is, when is the light going to break through? It's dark. It's all I see is darkness. I see no hope. I see no family, no friends. No lights are on. Everybody's asleep, and I'm sitting here watching. So the psalmist says, like a watchman that is in the dark of night, Surrounded by affliction, we wait and we look longingly for that dawn to break because we can hope that in the end, on the horizon, our Lord is our hope in trouble. God's promises can be trusted is what the psalmist even points out. We can hope in his word. We can trust in God and not fear other people and what they do. Psalm 56, 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? That is the mentality that we see we saw in Philippians that Paul demonstrated. That if I die, it's gain. If I live, it's Christ. I win. 
If we trust that God ultimately can be trusted, if we know and trust and put our hope in him, and we're not afraid of anything that man can do, how can we be stopped? What pain can we face that God cannot bring hope in? In Exodus, we see that God saw the affliction of his people. And likewise, we can trust that God can see us when we are in our affliction. He comes to Moses and he talks in Exodus 3, 9 through 10. He says, Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children, out of Israel, out of Egypt. God saw his people. He heard their cry. He saw their affliction. They were slaves in a foreign country. They had been put into forced labor. There's often there's caves. I've seen documentaries and showing these caves with scratches on the wall, prayers, crying out, have you abandoned us? Slavery was real and they were really oppressed. Yet God in his time says, I have heard their cry. And he found Moses and called him out. If you're familiar with the story, he led God's people out of Egypt. It wasn't easy. It was a long process. But God was faithful. And they moved on from their oppression and they quickly forgot about God's redemption and God's God's saving them from their oppressor. But he heard their cry. And though he sent Moses, we have a greater Moses. Where Christ was sent in our own affliction, in our own pain, in our own sin, he was sent to redeem God's people ultimately from this earth. So it might last for a day. It might last for a week. It might last for a lifetime. I don't mean to not give you any hope because that hope is not in how long our affliction lasts. Our hope is in that we serve the God who hears our cry and that he will redeem his people. And he has sent Christ. He has sent Christ. I also want to encourage you in this. Not only has he sent Christ to bring us out of our affliction, But God has also demonstrated there is purpose in our affliction. I don't know where you are right now in here. That is hard to hear in the midst of affliction. I know that. If we ever sit down together and you have pain and you have sorrow and you feel like you're under attack, I'm not going to sit down and say all things work together for good. Okay? And I encourage you not to do that with your brothers and sisters. Sometimes we must weep with those who weep and be a listening ear. We walk through this together. We carry one another's burdens. But be encouraged now and be reminded in the midst of it. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm. Because we know that as you share in the sufferings, you will also share in the comfort. This is coming from Paul, who in no small way can describe his sufferings, his afflictions, 
Stone, I've never been stoned to death. Not that, and I don't know of anyone who's attempted to kill me. I don't know of it. But Paul had several attempts on his life. In addition to shipwrecking, in addition to any number of sufferings and sicknesses and illness, being attacked from town to town as he tried to proclaim the name of Christ, and him in that suffering, in that affliction, can say, for just as the suffering of Christ overflows to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are suffering, it is for your comfort. Maybe you can share that same kind of story. I can reflect even on my own life and think of the opportunities and the privileges God has given me to show and demonstrate comfort in Christ to people who are going through something that I had to go through decades before. You don't walk a path for no reason. We live in a broken world. My family happens to be a divorced family. And I know uniquely what that looks like at a certain time in my life. And by God's grace, there have been a number of people in my life that have come along who have faced similar circumstances. And because of sin in this world, things like that and affliction and pain like that for you are going to happen. God allows that in our life so that we can be a comfort for others. It's not only a gift that he brings comfort for us, but he gives it to us through one another. He doesn't want to leave us in our sorrow. He doesn't want to leave us in our sin, in our suffering, because ultimately in the end, the psalmist says that the Lord is our hope for redemption. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him his redemption in abundance. He will redeem Israel from all of its iniquities. Redemption, restoration, all things new. This is the pinnacle of the psalm. He gets to the end and says, there is suffering, there is sorrow, there is affliction, there is sin. But in the end, our Lord is our hope for redemption. In the end, he will redeem us from all sin and all its effects. There will be no more pain, no more suffering. Though we face that in this life today, with the psalmist, we can say there is faithful love with the Lord and with him redemption in abundance. I love colorful language. I love how he tries to demonstrate for us the overflow, and yet it falls so far short. Because human language is insufficient to describe the mercies and redemption that is in Christ. Jesus was the redemptive plan everyone was looking for. And in him, God sent him to redeem his people, to make all things new. Remember, angels even looked onward to say, how is God going to pull this off? These sinful people in this world who have no chance of relationship with God apart from his mercies, how, how, is, this, how is he going to do this? 1 Peter 1, 11 through 13, they inquired into what time or what circumstance the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Peter's talking about the prophets. They were writing about things and they still didn't understand what God was really going to do. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have not been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. We are on the other side of Christ. We are on the other side of the cross that we know how God has sent his son to redeem his people. 
And we can celebrate with the angels the good news of great joy. That, that God would take his son on our behalf and place him as a baby on this earth. That our hope for redemption would lie in that innocence and that he would live perfectly to redeem God's people. And we can celebrate with the angels glory to God in the highest peace on earth to people he favors. All of us, this is what we celebrate. This is why we have great joy in our King. That as the psalmist recognizes, all our hope can be placed in him because God has demonstrated and been faithful to us and shown us immeasurable grace and mercy in his kindness and ultimately sending his son. That the hope of the gospel, that the hope of redemption is in that baby placed in that manger 2,000 years ago. And we start this season celebrating what God has done then. And yet knowing longingly in this brokenness, we must still remain hopeful in him that he will complete and bring to fruition ultimate redemption for all peoples in the end. I shared from previous week's sermon, I believe, that when Paul tried to speak to the Philippian church, he pointed out that we are not perfect in this life, but ultimately Christ in all his power will perfect us in glory. And I felt that in my own life, in my own theology, I had somewhat neglected that reality. Because let's be honest, how things all end, eschatology, the study of the end times, that's kind of a weird controversial thing. People get maps out. They start talking about like diagrams and what God's doing and all this stuff. But don't get mixed up and distracted by all that. In, the, in, in, the, in the, the bottom line, and what God is doing is that he is redeeming his people. And we can trust that he will do it the right way in his time. Yes, pursue our understanding. Yes, seek out God's word. Trust, read, pray. Long for him to come again, but trust in his word and trust in the Lord because that is where all our hope can rest. Let's hope in him. Father, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for the way you've demonstrated your faithfulness to your people. God, it is so gracious and kind of you to send your son for our sin that he, he would come as a baby that we could celebrate and remember and reflect. God, remind us of that. Remind us day by day that we hope and long for the day when you will make all things new. But while we wait, we can trust you. While we are surrounded in darkness, we can hope that you will save us and be with us. While we may be in pain and suffering, and while we may be in sorrow, and while we sin, we know that forgiveness abounds as we trust you. Teach us day by day to trust you. Teach me to have more faith in you. Grant me this today and grant us every day confidence in you and your son. We ask all this in your son's name.